Yes, you've arrived at the Legend Podcast at DaxMyHand.com. How did I become a legendary sports figure? How does anyone become legendary? It starts with a coach. Join us as we have conversations with coaches of all ages, experience, and expertise, and find out what does it take to lead athletes to legendary stats. What was your first experience with the legend? Where did you meet the legend? The first time I saw the legend was in middle school. And who is this blonde big forward (laughs) that can score? Where did he come from? North Marshall was devastating us anyway. And then now comes Dax onto the team. They were killing us. I saw the legend in action. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. But if you say get up and sing, I could sing in front of 10,000 people because that's my comfort zone and that's that's my ministry. All right, Tony, uh, one thing, uh, one place that I get to see you is uh, at Christmas time. Uh, you First Baptist Church in Paducah has their uh, their Christmas presentation, and and you generally are one of the leads in that. Talk about your time in the choir and and the things you do at church uh, that you're really proud of, and just just kind of give our listeners a, a feel for that. Well, I joined First Baptist. Actually, I joined the choir six months before I joined the church, and it was really the first time that I'd ever sung in harmony, really. It's the first time I'd ever sight-read music. I was never in school choir. I was never in, you know, um, I went to a small church, Bryant's Park Baptist, and there might be two people in the whole church that could do harmony. So like music theory, that just wasn't, you just got up and sang. And so I didn't understand, you know, being able to sing tenor, sight-read music and, and different things like that. But you go to choir at First Baptist, it's your first day. Here's all your music. We're going to sight read this and sing it on Sunday. And so it happens very, very quickly. And you're surrounded by very accomplished musicians. And they all just welcomed me, you know, very, very quickly within a couple of weeks. You know, I was I sang my first solo at, at First Baptist. And I guess for me, it, you know, the music, if you got, if you asked me to stand up in front of a thousand people and say, just tell some funny stories and, you know, just, you know, talk to them or minister to them, preach to them. You know, I would struggle with that. But if you say, get up and sing, I could sing in front of 10,000 people because that's my comfort zone. And that's that's my ministry is through singing. And that's, that's where I feel the most confident and, and comfortable. You know, we saw that when we went on a, uh, a mission trip to Romania uh, a few years ago. And it was amazing. We were in the most one of the poorest parts of Romania uh, is old communist, a communist cinder block buildings, no air conditioning, no food. And the hospital that we worked out of, and we had one of our choir members was a physician. I was a physical therapist. We had others that, and you'd go to these, these hospitals that would have maybe one or two staff people for the entire hospital. You'd have six patients in one room with, you know, an 80 year old, a woman in one bed and a 12-year-old boy in the next bed. Uh, so dirt, dirt poor. And so that that was part of our ministry. But every every night we would sing at a different church, and the, the people were so devout and so 
humbled that we would come there. You know, they they knew about First Baptist uh, Choir over there because we have several missionaries that would go back and forth. That one of them particularly was from that particular town, but they would just pack the church and they and again that that is my ministry is is through music. Tony, you know, we a lot of times we talk about how coaching is a two way street. Uh, and you shared something with us a little earlier. Could you share that again, the quote you had? Well, and- one of my, my favorite quotes and is John Maxwell says, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. I use that with my physical therapy students, and I use that with what I'm coaching. I use that with my, my boys and different people that I come in contact. And the idea is that I could have all the information in the world. I could be the best resource of the information that you need. But if you don't think that I'm invested in you, and I don't care about you, then I'm just a bunch of noise off in the background. You know, but, you know, if I have a stroke patient that comes in to see me and I'm begging them to do better because I I care enough about them and I'll tell them, you know, it would be very easy for me to walk away from this, but I care too much about you to not let you do better. And so this is what you've got to do to get better. You know, we coached, I coached uh, upward basketball with the middle school. And, you know, we had a wide variety of different um, athletes from different backgrounds and and things like that. And, And I tried to get to know every one of the players and talk to the players about stuff other than basketball. Part of, you know, the coaching is I'm, I'm not just teaching them how to dribble a ball. I'm teaching them how to be men and young young adults and it's it's the lessons that you learn from that you carry on for the rest of your life even if it's just even if they never play basketball again but they understand of how to shake somebody's hand and how to look at them in the eye and and say good game uh how to be a, a good loser uh and show good sportsmanship and and keep your some dignity and keep some humility uh along the way too so, you know, basketball is just a tool to to become a better person. Because you know, at the end of the day, how many how many kids that we have coached are going to end up making a living playing sports? I mean, you know, from a basketball standpoint, you think about it, Dan is probably Dan Hall is probably the only guy that we played with that made any money playing mm-hmm. sports if you get right down to it. So, so at the end of the day, I think your your point is very well made that that it is about developing children into being men and good productive citizens. I think that's yeah. spot on. My son my son was getting frustrated at one of the players that during practice wasn't paying attention and wasn't was goofing off and looking off and and the thing I told him I said, "You know what? I may be his only father figure." You know, I may be, I said, we have to keep going with him and we have to keep latch on to him because we may be the best influence that he gets today. You know, my brother has has had friends through the years that, that had uh, really, you know, really kind of tough home lives. And, and I, you know, my father was kind of known as the disciplinarian and, and people, you know, somewhat feared him. Kids did. But, you know, to this day, a lot of them come back and they see him and and, and they may have, have lived rough lives. But when they see him, he's Mr. My Hand. He commands their respect. And you're right. He he did have a positive influence on them, uh, seeing how a how an adult man should act and how he, he you know, coaches them and and uh, and, and raises them up to be good, productive 
citizen. So, and that's certainly how I saw Coach Hatcher. I certainly saw him as a father figure. And you know, people think of Coach Hatcher as this red face stomping around on the court screaming during practice, but they didn't see. You know, after all the players had left, and I'd be sitting in his office, and we'd be talking about school or talking about stress and talking about, you know, and he's funny. He's a funny guy that really cares about people and. You know, the people that have gone through his program and really stuck it out and were loyal to him, then he's loyal to the end. And he'll do anything that, that you need uh, for help on that. And so, you know, that's the coaches that I've had in my life. You know, Hatcher is, is probably one of the biggest influences that I've had of you can lose your temper. But at the end of the day, I always knew that he cared about us. Now, did you have any? Were there any other coaches or teachers that you kind of felt the same way about, or you felt like had really strong influences on you coming up? I've had I've had a few that you know, Coach Hatcher is as far as sports, you know, was really the the main one that that sticks out to me. Uh, really, after uh, I had a, a good friend of mine uh, named um, Alan Morris. His nickname was Moose. And I, after I graduated high school, I was in this summer musical that he produced, and we became really good friends and you know he's well, let me interrupt you real quick uh, tell us the name of that musical because i remember it because i saw it it was called the popularity showboat and it was a musical review of turn of the century style music uh over at the lakes and we performed several nights a week at different lodges and at the riverfront and you know moose was uh, uh, and tony powell was the other uh, director and uh, producer of it and, you know, they were just a few years older than us, but they had been producing musicals for a long time. And Moose was, he was, I've never met a person like him because he's one that one day he's, you know, producing musicals and uh, creating, publishing his own newspaper. And then he'll turn around and, and he reads physics books for fun and, you know, doesn't watch TV, doesn't, you know, I mean, he's he's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. But it was after my... My freshman year in college, I had gone from, you know, well, I, I went from valedictorian in high school to uh, participating in, in one too many parties over at Murray State. And I ended up, my grades dropped, lost a couple of scholarships. And Moose invited me, I wasn't going to be able to stay in the dorm. So Moose invited me to stay with him. And that was another one of those really influential times in my life. And, you know, and I would, you know, he wasn't a sports coach, but he was certainly a mentor of mine and really molded me. And he was one that, again, he, he's one that would say, focus on whatever you're doing, give it all your attention at the time. You know, and I think, that, you know, that's especially with media everywhere that we get so distracted. Where's my phone? What's on TV and and all that. And he he's about whatever you're doing, give it your best and then move on to the next thing. And but he was one that would really challenge me mentally. You know, Coach Hatcher really I learned discipline uh, through him. But Moose really taught me how to think and how to defend my position. And I would come back to the apartment and say, oh, "I got an A on this test. Oh, really? What'd you learn? Uh, well, I learned. Uh, well, then why'd you take the test? <laughs> if you if you didn't learn anything, what are you doing? And he's and I still use this quote with my boys. You know of. If you know the information, the grades will come. You're not going there to get an A. You know, just learn the information. And so he really uh, mentored me and pushed me to think for myself. He would give me projects and then walk away and trust me to 
get it done and not try to micromanage me. Uh, so he, he is another really big influence in my life. Learn the material and the grades will come. That's, I'll, that's, that's great stuff right there. Right. Well, my, my sons, they, they never liked it when I would study with them because, you know, at the end of, you know, they I'm getting ready to take a test. Okay. Well, tell me about it. Uh, what, and they'd pull out this worksheet. No, put that down. Just tell me what you know. Uh, and you know, so I still use that to this day. You know, my, my oldest son is Alex is brilliant, smarter than I ever was. You know, he's like a math savant does, um, again, does physics for fun, uh, does 2000 piece puzzles, you know, just to time himself to see if he can do it faster, does like 11 sided Rubik's cube puzzles in 12 minutes. So, you know, he's, he's brilliant, but he's one that, you know, this past year, there's been a couple of classes that he's let, you know, a couple of test grades slip here or there. And I've had to pull out those same things of, you know, lessons that I learned from Hatcher and lessons from Moose of discipline and doing things the right way and setting aside things that may be fun, you know, and are a great distraction. But he's like me. If he starts looking at his phone, he's going to get sucked into it. And an hour and a half later, time's gone, then he's panicking. And so it's disciplining and knowing yourself well enough to put yourself in a position to succeed. You know, if that means he needs to give me his phone while he goes and studies, then that's what he has to do. This whole year has been a big life lesson on setting aside gratification and disciplining yourself and doing the right thing. Not because it's fun, because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that, that's a that's a key point is delayed gratification because, you know, you, the, the work has to be put in. You know, generally most people are not successes. They don't just fall into success. It's generally work that gets them to the success mm-hmm. for delayed gratification. I think that's a really great point. Well, and I think, you know, especially with, with the media, multimedia, Facebook, Twitter, and all that, that our attention span has gotten so short and our patience has gotten so short that everybody wants an instant hit. They want to hit it big right off the bat. They want to be the most popular, get the most retweets and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's hard, it's a hard lesson to teach. It's hard lesson to learn, to delay that gratification, you know, to put off and having them, you know, trust me to know that the good stuff comes later, you know, do the hard work right now, put in the time now and the good stuff comes later. Market house experience and and the uh, and the showboat, which I I've, I came and saw and, and really enjoyed it. You know, you've spent a lot of time at the Market House Theater doing plays. Your your estimate is fifteen to twenty plays over about twenty years. Talk about what you've gotten out of that. What what that's done for you and and some of your experiences and and things you've learned from being at the Market House. For me. It started with with singing. You know, I'd always wanted to be in plays. I'd always been interested in musicals and things like that. At the time, Marshall County really didn't have any kind of thriving music um, department. You know, plus I was in sports, and so you, it was kind of one or the other. You couldn't do both. I had auditioned one time at, for a musical at Murray State and told the director, you know, I wasn't going to be able to come that night at callbacks. I had a test. Or so he was like, I don't think we'll need you on callbacks. So that was my only <laughs> tryout at Murray. I was done with musicals at that point. But by the time I had graduated college and, and come back, and, and the Market House had always, had always had a really good reputation, I decided I was going to try it. For me, music was always something that I could hang my hat on. You know, I was never going to be the big talker in the room, the big popular one. 
uh, the big entertainer. And again, you know, like I said, I was, I was the introvert, but music was something that I was more confident in. Uh, you know, Hatcher had asked me to sing the national anthem at ball games in high school. And again, that was something that you know, I could I could walk away saying, yeah, I can do that part of it well. And you get the pats on the back and that always helps uh, confidence, too. And so I think what the Market House has done for me is it's helped with confidence, just being able to get in front of a group of people and and speak. Uh, It's helped as far as not being afraid to express myself and be big. When my first uh, I, my first musical was South Pacific, and I ended up being Emile Debeck, the lead in it. And I was what twenty three years old, twenty four years old at the time, playing a middle aged Frenchman. But I was so stiff and so wooden uh, because I was so afraid to move my arms away from my body and be big, and I was so uh, afraid. Well, the, over the years of being around big personalities and being challenged to do things that are way outside of my comfort zone, that has carried over. Anytime I get asked to speak in front of a a, a group about physical therapy or whatever it, it, the topic might be, you know, just give me a time and I'll show up and I can I can talk about stuff and not be intimidated in, about being in front of people. The other thing, Market House, it also gave me a great network of friends. It's kind of like what we were talking about with Marsh County basketball and how the whole team was so accepting of the managers and we were part of the group. And that's really how it is at the market house too, of anybody that comes in and really has a good heart and does their best. They're instantly part of that family. And so no matter where you go, you see people that you've been in shows with and you, you can sit with them, you can talk with them and talk about, you know, plays that you've been in they're fun. And, and so it's it's just a it's a good thing to be a part of. I would ask you, have you ever directed any of the play? No, 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 no. That um, I'm really good at taking direction. You know, I don't know that I would be one to have that kind of vision to say I need you to take three steps over this way, and you know, because the one thing that I have learned about being on stage is, you know, being a director is a gigantic deal it's so you know there's all the preparation goes even before because you have to design the sets you have to cast everybody you have to go through and really analyze every word because you've got to be able to convey to that actor what does this word even mean what are you saying you know what what's the context of this you have to block everything you have to do all the lighting and so that would be a gigantic deal that would be way bigger than what i'm capable of doing one thing that uh, you know Shane and I had talk, had uh, spoke about before our interview with you was the role. You know, it's not athletics, but the role of the director as a coach, and and we're kind of you know we're kind of crossing the streams of theater and athletics here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but talk about that. How some of the, maybe compare and contrast. Well, I think the, 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 the really good the really good directors that I've worked with. Michael Cochran is, you know, is the main one that I've been in most of them. He's the executive director of the Market House. And what he is exceptional at is being able to convey the meaning behind why are we doing this? Why are you moving over here? But he also knows how to speak to each one of the actors. Because, you know, obviously when you get a bunch of theater people, there's a lot of egos floating around. And so he wants, it's a nonprofit. They want people to come back uh, and participate. So, you know, he's able to lead a cast of 35 people that every one of them um, 
is you know accomplished he's able to to really keep their attention keep them focused he knows who he can push and um criticize a little bit more than others that may need a little bit more stroking so he's able to read the cast very very well uh he knows who's going to work well together you know which which two can he put on stage together that are going to make uh, a really good team and i think it's you know the same with coaching you can't coach every single player the same way because one player you may be able to just unload on and they'll say okay thank you coach and i'll do better and the next one you know just has a meltdown and you never see them again and so i think just being able to read the players and know what what's the right thing to say at the right time is key have you consciously, as you're going through these plays and the practices, I know y'all, you, you've talked about y'all practice almost every night leading up to the uh, to the play. Do you ever sit in the play and think, this is just like Coach Hatcher would have done, or <laughs> or do you, or you know, as far as because I know on our even on our team there were those of us who he you know he would really get on and be hard on, but then there were others he knew he couldn't push. Because they would, their ego would break down, or they they wouldn't be able to push through it. Have you? Do you ever compare? Does that ever pop in your head as you're going through it? Well, for me, I think it's more of just I like to surround myself with strong leaders and people that I can learn different things from. And I think everybody that I have leaned toward, you know, I've learned something different uh, from them. Like I said, uh, with Hatcher, you know, learned about be on time, do it the right way, uh, do it. Um, you know, even though it's not it's not fun diving on the floor, but it's the right thing to do. And so that's what you've got to do. Uh, you know, we talk about it with Moose and, and learning how to think through things and don't just spout off, but be able to defend your answers and think on several different levels. And, and like I said, with Michael, it's really how to keep my calm when things are going crazy. When we did we did um, a couple of years ago, we did Les Miserables. Uh, which was a gigantic musical. You know, it's one of the all-time great musicals in Broadway history and known worldwide. And so the market house said that they were going to do Les Miserables. And everybody's question is, how on earth are you possibly going to do that gigantic musical on this little stage? And can Paducah pull the talents? Well, we worked for months on that, and it was it was stressful. It was it was hard hard work because it's the music is challenging. You know, we have to build a big barricade on stage in a few seconds. Well, about two or three days before we were supposed to open, the whole light system, the whole light board crashed. We had no lights anywhere. And Michael stayed up through the night. He called people and they they rewired that whole thing. They had to kind of Frankenstein it together and, and patch it together. But at no point did I ever feel like, he was going to lose it, you know, because he's our fearless leader. And if he's freaking out, then we would have all freaked out. And so he showed he showed tremendous leadership uh, through that, just keeping us all on point, keeping us um, happy to be there. We were all thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, but the fact that he was strong through that stressful time when anybody else could have just had a complete uh, come apart uh, was impressive for me. You know that that's a great point, and I'm I'm going to bring a pretty uh, bizarre uh, reference into this. Uh, I've been watching Caesar nine one one. Do you ever watch this show? No, I didn't it's a it's a guy who teaches people how to uh, handle their pets, specifically dogs. And one of the things he talks about, and and when as you're telling that story, I thought, man, this this is this totally applicable. His thing is as the pack leader. 
the dog takes his cues from you. And if you're confident, the dog will rest assured that things are, and he will be a calmer dog and he will, he will not be the crazy wild dogs that people see walking on leashes. And so as you made that point, I thought, you know, that's, that is a key. If your leader is calm, if your leader uh, gives off the bravado of I've got this, I'm, this is everything's under control. It, it lets the people under you or the, or your players or your actors uh, have a sense of calm and be able to deliver their performances the way they need to be done. Exactly. You know, I hate to I hate to mention 1992 Christian Leitner, but you know, we've let me interrupt you. We've never <laughs> spoke about that on this podcast. I just want to be clear about that. But you know, there is there is a you know, Coach K. What did he say at the timeout? Was you know, can you hit this shot? Okay, can you make this pass? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so, okay, when we when we win this game, so he was calm. He knew that he had already envisioned them winning. And if he had gone in there and his lip is trembling and his hand is shaking while he's trying to draw out a play, if the coach doesn't believe I can do it, then how am I going to have any kind of confidence going into this? Oh, that's a great point. I mean, it's, uh, that's gold right there. somebody about it if you like what you hear go to itunes subscribe to the podcast leave us a rating and review we would sure appreciate it